to begin today a metaphor. Uh, actually, one that I return to a lot. Um, when we play a board game, there's a couple of things that go into that concept, and I want to use that picture of a board game to kind of set our agenda for the next 45, uh, 45 minutes. Um, growing up, you probably knew there was the rules of the game, and then there was the house rules. And sometimes the house rules were unspoken. Sometimes they were taught so that you mistook them for the rules of the game. Uh, but once you started playing in other places, you discovered things were different. And so uh, that context is important. And before we look at things this morning, I want to kind of lay the context of, of the house that we live in. Uh, the second thing you do before you play the game uh, is, is you, you set up the board game in the same way that you have to um, give the setting before there was a play. And so books begin, it was a dark and stormy night, right? You, you know the setting before you get into things. And although those things are similar, um, what, what I'm talking about is I want to do two things before we get into the text. Um, I want to kind of talk about the house culturally that we live in and how it affects um, the way we think through this passage. And then I want to show you the lay of the board as it's presented in this text, and then I want to delve in. And the reason's very simple. It's because I want to win the game. And you can only win the game if you play by the rules, to paraphrase uh, the Apostle Paul. So here's, here's something that's really fascinating about the, the day and age, the times, the culture that we live in. A lot of times, our greatest desires, the ones that we, um, the ones that we verbally and constantly promote, the ones that we wave as a flag and gather around, the ones that we find our, our sole identity in as modern Americans, a lot of times those are in tremendous tension. And not necessarily the good and paradoxical tension where they pull on each other and create something good, but it seems to me that it's often something destructive. And so, so for example, community as a concept has become nothing short of a buzzword. Okay. It's one of those words that's now integrated into every other field. And so we can't talk about business strategy without talking about community. We can't talk about, um, talk about television without talking about community. Uh, communication is now built into community because social networks are the primary way that we're talking about how do we you know, get our message out and these types of things. So community is a huge thing for us. It's something that we aspire to. It's something that we think is important. On the other hand, we're also greatly drawn to the idea of autonomy. And that's not actually a word we throw around a lot, uh, but when we start to think about how we, we view ourselves and how we set a trajectory for life, how do we talk? We talk about, um, you know, finding our inner selves and pursuing it wherever it may lead. We talk about uh, our dreams and our aspirations and we recognize that there's all sorts of things that can hinder us getting where we're going. So here's how this, this tension or this contradiction, this, this problem bangs out. It means community always fails when, when autonomy is at risk. It means that if, if your choice is between community or you're being true to yourself, we, we trump community every time with self. And at the same time, we constantly aspire to community. I don't know if you feel the, that problem the, the way that I do, but, but let me just point out to you that by definition, community means commitment. 
And you've probably experienced in your own life uh, the ease, the ease of choosing to walk away because of self. Okay, that's that's just that's just where we're at. And so, simply put, trying to uphold as a way to understand life and the way it's to be lived, these two ideas of autonomy and community is, is in one sense incompatible, okay? Um, and there has been, um, there, this, this problem's just, it's not simply an out there problem, it's an in here problem, okay? Uh, and so with that being said, now I want to um, talk about the passage. We're currently in the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning we'll be in chapter 12. Um, if you want to open up a Bible and read along, that would be great. There should be one nearby you in the back of a pew. Here Paul is trying to correct a misunderstanding that the church in Corinth has, a church that he planted, about how the church is supposed to operate operate spiritually. And the problems that they were experiencing are right on these lines of the tensions created when people try and be together, when they try and do something together, when they say, let's move in this direction together. Um, The breakdowns that were happening in that community are not um, unsurprising. It became about status. Uh, It quickly divulged not into a community, but a community with a top tier and a bottom tier. Uh, There was constant tension between people's particular conscience and how that impacted the rest of the group. And so some were taking a stand and saying, why am I subject to his feelings? I know this is right. I know this is okay. All of these things are going on. And so Paul is re-instructing them on the spiritual realities of church. And so he's been doing this over the course of chapter 12. It continues into chapter 13 and all the way into chapter 14. But since chapter 12 is kind of the end of his first line of reasoning, it presents, or sorry, this section of chapter 12 is the end of his first line of reasoning. It presents a pretty good summary of what's come before as well as leading into what's next. So let's read it together, um, starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says here, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, I want to pray in just a second before we get deeper, but I want you to notice kind of, like I said, the lay of the land. I want you to notice that he begins with a summary statement of what we've already been talking about. Last week, he spoke extensively using this metaphor of the body. So he looks at the church, and he says the church is comparable to a human body. It has many parts, and each of those parts are different and has different roles, but they're all part of the body. They are all important to the body. And so he's trying to talk about both unity and diversity. And so he avoids full-fledged individualism and autonomy. In fact, he says, can any of us be the body of Christ on our own? And the answer is no. 
Can any of us be the church solo? And the answer is no. But on the other hand, he also says, can we say to anyone in the church, I don't need you, we're sufficient without you. Can you draw the borders in the church in such a way that you leave a part of it out and say this is really unessential, it's at best optional, and we're going to opt out? And he says no. And so, um, so he walks through both of these things. He starts with that statement, and then surprisingly... After all of this emphasis of unity and an equal value in the body, he then starts to delineate a list of gifts and put them in numerical order. Do you see how surprising that is? How unexpected that is? Instantly, we would think, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that we're really bad at trying to find who's at the top, who's the cream of the crop, who's the most valuable? So why would he give this list? And this is such a problem that some commentators are like, look, he's not actually making a list here. But he starts with first, and then second, and then third, which is, by the way, not common in the writings of Paul. And so I would just say, simply, it means something here. But he gives this list, and then he starts asking rhetorical questions in uh, verse 29. And he basically, all of them with an implied answer of no, says, is everybody one gift? No. Is everybody this other gift, right? Are all apostles? The answer is no. Do all speak in tongues? The answer is no. And then, once again, surprisingly, in verse 31, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And so, at the end, he says, all body parts are equal, even though they have different roles. He says, however, we should be aspiring to the better gifts, We should earnestly desire the better gifts. And once again, it sounds a little bit incompatible. In fact, some commentators have said that maybe this is him quoting. Or maybe this should be better read in the indicative. So literally, but you desire the better gifts. Instead, I'll show you a more excellent way. Now, on its own, that would actually be a pretty good reading. But it ignores the rest of Paul's argument. Because if you look at chapter 14, verse 1... After this most excellent way that he lays out in chapter 13, look at how he sums this up. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. When he says especially there, what is he saying? He's saying there's better gifts, right? And so he ends in the same place he begins. Now, I know to some degree all of these things may seem um, unimportant or irrelevant, but they will become important. But I want you to see the lay of the land. In Paul's mind, he can both say that we are all the body and individually members of it. He can both say we need each and every part and no part is sufficient in itself. And at the same time, he can say, however, there is an order. However, there is uh, some gifts that are better than others. And I'll be honest, when I read this because of my natural born postmodern cynicism, the first thing I think of is George Orwell's uh, animal farm. All animals are equal. Some are just more equal than others, right? So we have to go, okay, what is going on here? What is Paul talking about? And I would argue that when we understand what's going on here, we really start to get below the surface of what God has actually done in the church and how unique it actually is. So let's pray and we'll take a look. Father, when we gather as a church, we come with our own house rules. We come with preconceived notions of what these things look like. And because we share a culture, we share a lot of those preconceived notions. But instead of that leading to unity, because they're wrongly centered, because the rules uh, were not made by the rule maker, 
um, they tend to be uh, in conflict and cause problems instead of providing solutions. As much as Nick quoted Augustine as saying, our hearts is restless till they find rest in you. Uh, our unity is ununified until we unify around you. And so I pray, God, that you would teach us uh, what it looks like to be your body this morning and how it can be that we should value each and every person in the body of Christ and at the same time earnestly desire the greater gifts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize that Paul does not say in this passage, strive for community. He doesn't say, make community. Notice the tense of the opening verse here in verse 27. He says, you are the body of Christ. Now, let me get under the hood and show you what's going on in the Greek there, because it's a little bit interesting. There is no Greek equivalent to either an A or a V in this sentence. He doesn't say you are a body of Christ or you are the body of Christ. Now, actually, those emphases bring out something that's appropriate. When he says you are the body of Christ here, he's talking about the church. And so I could read it as A and go, okay, that's good. He's recognizing that when we gather here, we don't complete the church. This is not Christ's church in totality, right? The, uh, the early church fathers and the Reformation theologians talked about the church universal. This recognition that we're never going to sit in a room until Jesus returns, we're never going to sit in a room with the whole church represented. And so to some degree, when we talk about the body of Christ, we're only a part of it. You are a body of Christ, of many bodies of Christ. But he doesn't settle for that metaphor here because it, it also leads to a misunderstanding. On the other hand, he doesn't say you are the body of Christ, emphasizing the fact that wherever you find the church, you find the church in total. It's pretty clear to me, although, um, although we can look at the um, church from church to church to church, and we can see a different, um, a different proportional measurement of the gifts. So, for example, you have Pentecostal churches that seem to have collected more of the spiritual and miraculous gifts, more speaking in tongues, more prophesying like that. You might find churches that are more Baptist and businesslike, and so there's more teaching and more administration. We have a tendency to gather collectively around gifts that we're comfortable with. And so in churches where teaching is elevated extensively, you find a lot of teachers and it's just as easy to go, those teachers exist there because they were taught to be teachers as it is to say they were attracted to a teaching ministry. They have a natural appreciation for who they are. This is a sidebar, but an important one. Um, out of Fuller Seminary, years and years ago, came a principle for planting churches that they called the HUP, the Homogenous Unit Principle. The idea is a really simple one that I think you'll probably understand because you live it out all the time. The principle is you like to be around people like you. And so the premise was the best thing that churches can do then is to focus on a particular microcosm of a group of people because then, then everybody in that church will reflect that and they'll, it'll just work better. Uh, in other words, we got hipster churches. We got churches that were focused on middle class or blue collar workers or, or the wealthy or these types of things. And basically Fuller said we should harness this reality and use it for planting churches. We should be more strategic. The problem is when you read the New Testament, it emphasizes that one of the things that best demonstrates what God has done in Jesus Christ is the diversity. 
that there is Jews and Greeks in the same church, that there are those who would be articulated as barbarians and others who would be the upper echelon, the elite, that there is poor and rich, Uh, all of these things. In fact, Paul points out in Philippians chapter 2, the fact that these barriers between people are broken down is miraculous, and it points directly to the fact that God has done something miraculous in the church, okay? So, so when, when we think of the church local, although maybe demographically you're going to see some of these differences, and that's true, it's appropriate to say you are the body of Christ. The, the full gamut of spiritual expression, that all it means to be Jesus' incarnate body working on earth should be represented in any given local church. But he doesn't say either of those things. What he says would probably, if we tried to translate it directly in English, he says, but you are Christ's body. Okay, he puts the emphasis in a different place. Not one of many, not on your own uh, completely and fully, but if Christ has a body, it's you. You are Christ's body. Okay. The recognition that Paul is making in this, very simply put this morning, is that the, the way that God is working in the world, the way that Jesus continues his ministry, is through us. If God is working his primary means in this day and age is the church okay and once again that's not the church as an organization or an institution that's us as the church but that's what he says here and when he says this the recognition is then that what God is doing in the church is what Jesus was doing that we are manifesting the love and the power and the truth of Jesus Christ But once again, when he says this, and when he brings up this metaphor of body, it clearly implies unity. It clearly implies collectively that we do this together. Um, But he does not say, become the body of Christ. He doesn't say, strive to be this. He says, in present tense, this is who you are. And see, this is a place that we have to recognize the difference here. God doesn't call people to gather around and make communities because of what Jesus has done. Instead, the New Testament proclaims that what God has done in Jesus has already created one. And so what we are called to then is not to make community, but to enter into it. And that difference is profound, okay? You see... There's a sense where, although it's probably helpful language in some way to talk about joining a church, it's a misnomer. It's not a good way to talk about it. You can't actually join the church. You can be joined to the church. And when you become a Christian, when you receive Jesus, you also receive a family. You also receive a part in the body. You're grafted into this big plant of God's plan, and you become a new branch on what God is doing, but you share the self-same life. You share the self-same source. We are the body of Christ. Even if you're visiting this morning, if you've taken Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if that's the focal point, the center of your life, where you place your faith, you are a part, a member of the church. And so here we find a tremendous ground for unity Because it doesn't have to be strived for. It doesn't have to be made. It doesn't have to be found. You don't have to look for commonality in this church. 
okay? If you are the church, you found your commonality because the commonality is Jesus Christ. The same life flows through our veins. The same name, uh, you know, rests over our reputation. Um, We are the body of Christ. Part of the reason why community is so difficult for us as human beings is because we have to unify around something, and all of us walk in with a different understanding of what that is. Even if we use the same code words, even if we have the same concepts, we're going to set something at the center, but it only takes a little bit of time to recognize that our key is just a little bit different than your key, right? And so things start to break down, things start to shift. But here's, here's what I want to emphasize this morning, the reason that you should go to church, the reason that you should participate in what it means to be the church, the reason why you should enter into life is because you are the body, because of what God has already done in Jesus Christ, because this is, this is mind-blowing, but just realize this. Jesus didn't go, you know what would be best for the world, You know what would be best to reach the world, to love the world, to serve the world, to proclaim who God is and invite them into relationship with him? I'm going to make a bunch of little Jesuses and send them out solo. What he's talking about here is clearly not uniformity. There's no manufacturing of Christians. That's not what's being talked about here. It is by definition, on purpose, intentionally community but it's a community that is created by God that you are grafted into. Okay, now he says you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, okay? And so here we find a balance, but the balance is not community and autonomy. It's unity and diversity. Now, that sounds similar, but it's not. Here's what he's not saying here. He doesn't say you are both the body of Christ and people who embrace individualism, okay? In fact, although the English word in the ESV here is individually, the, the word is a little bit different than, than what that applies in my mind. Uh, in part is a direct translation of this. In part, members of it, meaning that you have a part and only a part, okay? And so the idea here is, and I'll just take the body metaphor, you can have 10 fingers laying in a drawer, a head in another drawer. You can lay all of the pieces of body about, but if they're not connected, it's not a body, right? And so, so the idea here is not of individualism, not of what draws us together is uniquely who we are in and of ourselves, and there's a shared commitment because of our individual commonalities. It's different than that, okay? It's different than that. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let me just put it simply this way this morning. It doesn't matter how you feel about your value to the church. You are valuable. If you feel like you don't fit, in my opinion, that makes you the best fit. Because it means that the missing capacities of the body as reflected in our particular expression here, you can fulfill. Right? Now, that's not comfortable. It goes directly against the HUP, the homogenous unit principle, but that's what makes it so glorious. You have a part to play here. And not only has Jesus grafted you into the body for the sake of us and for your own sake, 
You can't turn to the church and say, I do not need you. We can't turn to you and say, we do not need you, right? That's the implication of this chapter. But not only has he done that, but he's also uniquely gifted you through his spirit to be a part of the body. Once again, I think this is a little bit surprising. Like, we would expect kind of a Matrix-style download mentality where every Christian, when they become a Christian, God would just fill them with the totality of who Jesus was. You have all of the gifts, you know, and now you know what it's like and everybody's got everything. But that's not what's recorded here. That's not the way it's laid out. Are all apostles? No. Can all teach? No. Do all have the gifts of tongue? tongues? No. Now, I might as well deal with it now because I don't want to deal with it later. But clearly here, this means that no particular gift becomes the litmus test for being part of the body. Clearly. When he says here, do we all speak in tongues, the implied answer is no. Okay. But it's the same thing with every other gift on the list. Because somebody's manifestation of the Spirit is different than ours doesn't justify excluding them from the body of Christ. So, he emphasizes this at the beginning, this this equal value, this equal importance, and he basically says says that that community is, is already. You're already here. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. Um, If you have never had a chance to read this book, it is a a classic for a reason. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. Um, But listen listen to what he says here and just just marinate it on, on it with me. He says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It's rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all of our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Like everything else God does, the basis of us experiencing it is that God has done and God has promised. Okay, And so... Effectively, what Bonhoeffer is arguing here is stop trying to create community. Instead, just be the body. He says in another place, anyone who brings their dream of community into community will inherently destroy it. But anyone who just seeks to love their family will create community. Okay? But, with all of that being said, if the greatest grounds for unity in the church is Jesus Christ. The greatest threat to our community is us. Okay? And this is probably best manifested today, not merely in the fact that we're all sinners gathering around um, you know, the same fountain of forgiveness. Not merely that, but that we have this ingrained sense of autonomy. We just think that way. We're culturally bred to put our dreams and aspirations is the driving force of our life, and so that's where the tension comes to play. We believe, oftentimes, that what love looks like is affirmation, always and constantly. And so whoever we are, those who really love us will let us follow that to the end. And whenever we find somebody who stands against that, we naturally interpret that as unloving, and we go and we look for something else. 
we believe uh, that freedom trumps commitment. It's changed so much over the course of history, the way we think about interpersonal relationships. Maybe today the only one that's left that implies an actual wholehearted and full commitment is marriage. But even that, we have all of these um, escape clauses now built into the way we think about marriage. And so if marriage doesn't make me happy, if it doesn't lead to a better me, then I can walk away from it. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that right now. I'll do that another time. Uh, this morning, I'm just, I'm just pointing out to you that that's rather, relatively new. It's relatively novel. It doesn't match up with what we've known for the rest of history. If you guys are watching The Crown currently, you might be scratching your head because you're watching the way that uh, marriage and divorce impacted the royal family in Britain uh, you know, in the last century, and you're going, why is this such a big deal? It was a big deal. That's the point. See, here's the thing. Love hurts. Anytime you seek to open yourself up truly and fully to the concept of community, people are going to let you down. People are going to make mistakes. People are going to misunderstand you. People are going to bring their own wrong sense of self into the room and make a mess. Now, just just odds. If every person you've ever met is a threat to community, assume you are too. Let's, let's just start there, okay? This is not a them problem. This is an us problem. Um, but, but here's the thing. We're almost designed in this day and age towards this concept of autonomy. And so when the road gets bumpy, when things get difficult, we get out of dodge. That's just, that's just so much of life. You were choosing, in that case, to avoid love. You're choosing, in that case, to walk away from relationships. You lose the good with the bad. And I'm speaking from personal experience because this is the life I live. Do you want to know the verse that I preach to myself the most often in the entirety of scriptures? It's from chapter 2. It's not good that man should be alone. Because I am thoroughly and utterly convinced of my own self-sufficiency, that the greatest problems in my life are other people, that if I could just be alone and have everything I need, that I would be content, that I would be happy, that I would be more productive. It doesn't matter what the list is. I generally think that you're the problem, okay? Now, I'll tell you what, the Bible has a much more radical problem. It says, actually, we're the problem. The greatest threat to whatever you have going on in your life to every relationship, to every aspiration, to worship of God in particular, is you. That's where the Bible says the problem is. It's not environmental, it's not social, it's internal. It's a heart problem. It's what the Bible labels sin. Okay. Now, I can tell you from almost 12 years of marriage, and I, I had to commit to marriage. It's a social practice. I don't mean I had to get married, but if I wanted a relationship with my wife that looked like marriage, it involved commitment. That's what I'm trying to say. I didn't know what I was in for, but I will tell you I have tasted all sorts of things that I never got the chance to taste in other relationships because I could leave. I have such a firm and deep fight-or-flight mentality that I will just pick my battles. If I can't win this battle, I'm gone. I've done that my whole life. 
It's entered into every work relationship I've had. It's entered into every friendship I've had. But this quote from C.S. Lewis got under my skin one day, and it still sits there. He says this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. And I'm not sharing that just as a warning that C.S. Lewis gave me that scared me into community. I'm sharing it as a personal experience that I've tasted. When I read it's not good that man should be alone, I've experienced that. I know what I'm like solo, okay? But we're so bred towards autonomy, we don't always see the threat of isolation, We don't always see the pattern that we look back that the common denominator in all of your failed relationships is you, right? You're the one who's been one half of each of those relationships. The other one's a revolving door of other people. But the point that he says here is so profound. It's that God has overcome this problem in Jesus Christ. He has made a community by the power of his spirit, with the forgiveness of his blood, through the work of Jesus Christ, in all of your problems, with all of your warts, he has said, you are now family. He has given you a name that can't be disgraced because you were disgraced when he gave it to you. He has given you a community that you can't walk away from because it's an eternal community. And I'll tell you what, if you've run from a thousand churches, if you're really part of the body of Christ, you've not escaped any of them. You will spend all of eternity with them. It's true, is it not? I'm just talking about a theological reality as the Bible presents it. Okay? It may be a taming of the shrew reality, right? Where you're Bianca constantly running from what you think is a horrible husband, but in the end, he's going to find you. If you haven't read the story, that sounds super threatening. It's not a horror story. (laughs) But this is the thing. The basis of unity in the church is already taken care of. It's already paid in full for. The oil that greases the gears of the machine of the church is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, serious things come up in the church, but true forgiveness that doesn't downplay the sin because Jesus had to die for it, but doesn't leave the sin in place instead of the relationship because Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for it. Those realities are true. And God has so designed the church that you can try and live without it, but it won't be living. You can try and be a witness for Jesus solo, but you can't be it. He has made you a part of the church. He has designed you as merely a part of the body. He has invited you into the body. And on the same hand, we need you. And so there's this profound basis for unity and diversity, right? Each having their own role to play, each having a part to play. And then out of the blue, 
he starts to put the gifts in order. It's like he's already shaken up the box, taken all of our uh, you know, delineations of values and said, no, it's all equal now. Whatever coins you have in your pocket, they're all worth 25 cents. And then he says, now, let's, let's talk about how God has given these gifts. And notice what he says. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, when he uses first, second, and third here, it seems like ranking. It just does. And surprise, surprise, who does Paul put at the top? Apostles, right? (laughs) It's easy to read it that way, but there's a few things I want you to notice. Um, The first is, although he starts with a numerical delineation, it fades. So he gets to first, second, third, and then he changes to the word then. He uses then one more time, and then it's just commas. Do you see that? Okay, and so he's not making a rigid and thorough and complete list. He puts tongues at the end because that's the gift that's been elevated in the Corinthian church, and so he's intentionally put it at the end of the list, but not because it's the worst gift, okay? just because he wants to make a point. But even with that, even though this is not a rigid list, it clearly has the intention of laying out some sort of order. Now, because of this strong belief we have in autonomy, this is another thing we can't handle. A quality plus order doesn't make sense to us. We're so democratic in our thinking, we think that it has to be everybody in the same role, or or if there's any sense of order, if there's any sense of hierarchy, it's a threat to community. It's a threat to equality. It's a threat to individuality. Now, the reason why Paul moves from A to B so quickly here without stopping to explain himself is because our problems, he's not even thinking about. He comes from a totally different culture. That distance between those two realities wouldn't have occurred to him. And this is an important thing to keep in mind, that the Bible maintains spontaneity and spirituality and order. We'll see that in chapter 14. And here, we see that the Bible maintains equality in value and difference in role, and that difference sometimes involves the fact that some gifts are better than others. But it leads us to ask, better in what way? That's the point that Paul is trying to make. You see, Paul is such a great strategist, he always ropes the Corinthians in to get a hearing and then deals with their issues. And so when he says, earnestly desire the better gifts, some people in the audience are thinking, all right, here's the validation of my awesomeness I've been anticipating. This is Paul taking sides and finally saying, this is the best group of the church. That's what they're expecting. Now, they've already, in this order, had something different, so let's talk about it. He says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now, he is either talking about an order chronologically, or he is talking about some sort of other order of significance. Okay, you can be first in the race because you're first off the line, but you can also be first because you're first in importance. Both of them actually seem possible when we read this. The recognition of the apostles, and here it's my belief that he's talking about capital A apostles. Okay, those who were appointed by Jesus for the foundation of the church. The ones who are listed in Revelation as being the foundation stones themselves of what God has done. Okay. There may be a lowercase a apostle. In fact, we find them in the New Testament, but they're apostles of particular churches. Messengers, representatives of particular churches who we would send, for example, to a group church meeting 
and they'd go as a representative. Okay, the word is relatively broad, but here he seems to be using it in his technical sense. So he's talking about a, a group of people who have seen the risen Lord Jesus. He just told us this a few chapters ago that that's what validates him as an apostle. Um, that were appointed by Jesus and given the authority that is what we would call apostolic, and that's where the church begins. Okay, he says second prophets. Now, once again, this is in my opinion, because the word prophet is a broad one, even as Paul uses it in this letter. He's going to go on to talk about the gift of prophecy in the church in Corinth. In fact, he's going to put that relatively high on the list for the church in Corinth. But I think here he's talking about a particular group of prophets, the ones who authored the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, we have written prophets and we have speaking prophets. So we have men like Elijah and Elisha. And then we have men like Isaiah. When we get to the New Testament, Peter connects the dots for us and he says that the creation of the New Testament is because, like the Old Testament, men have been carried along by the Holy Spirit okay, and have written the word of God. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy. Um, and we, we can see, by the way, this recognition happening throughout the New Testament that they know that God is speaking and creating effectively the Bible. If you want to know about that, we can talk about it another time. But I believe that's what he's talking about. First comes the apostles, and then there's this prophetic authority, okay? And then there's teachers. So it may be just chronologically he's talking about how the church has evolved over the 20 years that have made up its existence so far when he authors the letter to the church of Corinth. First came the apostles and the prophets, and then the teachers. What happens next is he references all of these other gifts, but it's pretty clear two things. One, that the order at least isn't precise, because we have these gifts listed even earlier in the chapter in a slightly different order. Uh, Two, that it's not a complete list, because he adds gifts here that we've never heard mention of in 1 Corinthians, and he leaves off gifts that he's already mentioned. So, for example, uh, the discerning of spirits that he mentions earlier in chapter 12 is not on this list. But the gift of helps is. But the order that he lays out here, I think, is best understood. Well, let me deal with the two gifts that are new to us here. Helping and administrating. When we organize the gifts and put them first, how do we decide what's better? I just want you to notice that these gifts are in the list, firmly in the middle of the list. And they're things that we wouldn't always value. Okay? The gift of helps, the way that that word's used in the rest of the New Testament is specifically helping those in need, helping the weak. Okay? The gift of helps is a servant gift, not a leadership gift, not an authority gift. It's just coming alongside someone in need and taking care of it. First off, I want you to recognize the dignity that's given to that role right here because Paul says that's a spiritual gift, that it's divinely given that it's not earned or deserved, and it's not deserved in the negative sense of we didn't know what else to do with you, so pick up a broom, okay? Helps. It's spiritual. It's powerful. It's a manifestation of who Jesus is. One of the things that's tremendous about Jesus in the Gospels is his humility. He has time for everyone. He, has, he, he does things that are so humbling. He kneels down and washes the feet of his disciples in a culture like that, it's so offensive to Peter, one of his disciples, that he refuses and he says, no way. Jesus doesn't stop and think, what's the most prestigious way that I could serve my family? It's not even on his agenda. 
And so the reality of this is lifted up. It's given dignity. And then the second one is administration. The word here just means to strategize. It means administration. It means managerially the people behind the scenes who make stuff happen. Simply put, God cares about that, and the body doesn't work without it. Removing administration and saying the gifts that really matter are the super spiritual ones or the ones that are super visible like teaching is like ripping the you know, central nervous system out of the body and saying, oh, there doesn't need to be any internal communication. It doesn't work. So these gifts are here, and they all have their value, but what does he mean when he says, earnestly desire the better gifts? When we get to chapter 14 we'll see the criteria that he gives, and it's an important one. The question is, which gift best serves the church? Now, that's a majorly different idea of better, okay? Not which gifts are the most flashy, not which gifts come with the most prestige, not which gifts are the most miraculous and demonstrate my spirituality. And let me just remind you that that is a concern, When God does miraculous things through us, it's very easy to give us a free pass on the rest of our lives and say, well, clearly, I'm spiritual. I know that that's the case because that's what was going on in Corinth. And they said, I speak in tongues, so I'm clearly the most liked individual by God. I'm clearly the most in tune with his spirit. The church in Corinth is a total mess. They've gotten it wrong on every every account. And so, yeah, they're spiritual, with air quotes, okay, We're totally capable of the same thing. But Paul gives us a new dynamic, a new lens, a new better, and the the question becomes, which one will best serve the church? And this this means in two ways. When he talks about prophecy and teaching and apostleship and these things being better gifts, it means because they have a broader audience of impact. Okay? But I think it'd also be appropriate, I don't think I'm being heretical here, to recognize that better also means the ones that are most needed in a particular situation. That better also means the ones that are least reflected in a particular congregation. That, uh, that what he's talking about here is not the question of which gifts are the most important, but what does the church need? He takes the issue off of self-importance on, and puts it on the issue of how do I care about other people? And there's one other thing I want to add to this, even though it's a little bit tertiary. We'll come back to it in chapter 14. But how can he say earnestly desire the better gifts? He says earlier that the Spirit appoints as he wills, as he desires, that God has not invited you into a toy store and said, pick out your favorite toy. But he's given you a gift, one that you may not even know you currently have. Okay? So how can he say here, desire? Look, it's very simple. God is sovereign, but prayer still exists. God calls us to ask for things, and James goes as far to say sometimes you have not because you ask not. This is an interesting concept. It means if our church is deficient in a particular area of what it means to be the body of Christ, have we even shown the wherewithal to recognize that need and pray that God would meet it? And sometimes when we pray that prayer, God meets it in us. If you desire to serve the church through teaching. Have you ever asked God to give you the gift of teaching? Clearly here, when Paul says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, he's recognizing here that it's appropriate to ask. It's just not appropriate to take. The recognition here that's built into the other side is that God gives sovereignly. And so he gives graciously. Now, so 
here's what better doesn't mean, just in summary. Better doesn't mean better Christians get better gifts. The word gift implies that. It means according to God's grace, unearned, unmerited. Okay? Somebody can have what appears to be an incredibly flashy and beautiful gift, one that impacts tons of lives, and it says nothing about how God feels about them versus how he feels about you. Nothing. It's a gift. God gives great gifts to crappy people all the time. He does, because he's a gracious God. That's just the way he works. It also doesn't mean better in terms of whatever gift we think is the most exciting. We think is the most, I mean, and it's really good that that's not in there, because not only would that be subjective, but we would constantly be viewing it through self-interest. How does he define better here? Simply, how can I best serve the church? What does the church most need? He takes it off of us, and he puts it on others. And so it's no surprise that not only does he say earnestly desire the higher gifts, but how does he finish? I'll show you a still more excellent way. Now, maybe you already know where he's going, but 1 Corinthians 13, he says that more excellent way is love. If your aspirations in spiritual gifts, if your using of the spiritual gifts, if your conceptual thinking of how God works in the church doesn't include love, then it's a misunderstanding. That's what he's about to say. That's the more excellent way. And remember what love means. You see, the problem with autonomy is autonomy taints our concept of love into a self-oriented idea. And so the first question we ask is, do they love me? Instead of how can I love? Now, there's an aspect of that that's really important. We need to recognize uh, that, that there's a reciprocity here and we need not only to be loving a community, but be in a loving community. That's totally, ap- uh, absolutely appropriate and accurate. But if the driving way that you determine all your decisions is, am I being loved? There's a bias there I just want to draw your attention to. And this is how the Bible defines love for us. This is love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says if you want to understand love, you need to look at the cross. And it defines it as self-sacrifice. So the way that we relate to one another, the way that we be the body, the way that we do what God has created us in the church to do is through love, is through putting others first at cost to ourselves. Okay? And so when we come back to the gifts with that mentality, we go, what, what would best serve the body? And I'll remind you one last time because I know how hard it is to run this heresy of excellence out of our concept of church. We need all the gifts. We need them all. And a Jesus who speaks profoundly and doesn't care for the poor is not Jesus. And a Jesus who's scattered and doing all sorts of amazing things but has no organization or order is not Jesus. And a Jesus who um, manifests all of the miraculous but is strayed from the truth is not Jesus. What God has created the church to be is complex, it's diverse, and it's also complete. So he's given us a part to play. And I'll just give you this simple application this morning. You have a part, and I totally understand if you don't know what it is. Ask God to show you. And let me just finish here.
one of the glories of being adopted into this community is you don't have to discover the part you play alone. And I have found consistently that it's much easier to see others, other people's giftings than it is your own. And so when you seek what the Lord has for you in this church and for the church at large in community, people are going to lay their finger on things and go, I don't know if you know this about yourself. Or they're going to lay fingers on things that you think are just totally normal and they're going to say, look, Jesus ministered to me through that in a way that was abnormal. Okay? There's a spiritual aspect that's sometimes discernible in the gifts. Here's how it works out for me. This is so normal. This is so natural. Sometimes it impacts people in ways, and I'm like, that's dumb. That's super weird. That doesn't make any sense. What I just did was so normal. It's all in my own brain. But the reality is God uses me. And I've had people come up and say the smallest encouraging, encouraging thing, and it's been like an arrow into the deep recesses of my pain. Right? Miraculously delivered to my heart, even though it was merely words. And I've watched as people finally got the love of Christ in the presence of a person, just being there. So this is big ticket stuff. But the greatest threat to it is, A, that we would try and create a community, that we would find a banner to wave around, something, some commonality we have. Instead, we just have to enter into what God has done in Jesus Christ. He's grafted us into the body already. And then the other thing is that we would allow autonomy to rob us of this community because it's hard, because it's different, because it involves people who aren't like you. Let's pray. Father, my earnest desire for us this morning is twofold. It's love and the greater gifts. It's the more excellent way, Lord, that we, uh, we would put gifts and how God uses us in the subcategory of how we love one another. And I pray for each and every one here this morning that whether they find that community in our church or in another church, whether they're visiting with us for the first time or just on occasion because they have another church in another place, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would be the body. That we would enter into the community you have for us, that you would help us to get used to and understand our gifts, and that we would use them not only to your glory instead of our own, but to the building up in the benefit of the church, in the service of God. I pray, Lord, that you would refine us into a better reflection of who you are as a people. I pray, Lord, for the places where we're deficient, where gifts are underrepresented, that you would make known to us where those gifts lie, that you would give new gifts, if it be your will, that you would reveal given gifts. But I pray, Lord, that we would be a body that is spiritually empowered to be your body. And I ask finally, Lord, that you would, um, you would just help us to recognize this myth of the value of autonomy and personal freedom, that we would recognize that's all well and good if we want to be alone. But if we recognize, as the Bible declares, that we were built to be insufficient in our self-sufficiency, that we were built for love and for relationship, that we have inherent need for other people, 
and that the way that you've designed and chosen to work through us is in this community of the church. Even if we have to say like Augustine did, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. I pray that we would, we would risk tragedy knowing that that's the only place where the fulfillment of love and community is available. In Jesus' name we pray these things this morning. Amen. Amen. As we respond this morning, as we worship, um, those of you who are Christians, feel free to come forward, partake of communion, remember what Jesus has done. And it's, it's, it's barely even stale yet, but if you've been traveling with us through 1 Corinthians, remember what Paul said, that we do that discerning the body that we partake of communion recognizing that we all partake of the same loaf, that we all partake of the same body, that we're all grafted in to the same nourishment. Uh, and so be aware that Jesus didn't die for you singular, he died for us plural. Um, let's just take some time and respond this morning. If you're in need of prayer, um, there's people from one of our home groups up front who would love to pray with you. But let's, let's just respond to God's word.